Good morning, church. Good morning, church. All right, just all right. No, I thought you were out there. I was pretty sure. Good to see you. I know. I catch you off guard because I never do that. I don't, I don't test it with like how the first service did, but yeah, they had you beat. Sorry. Good to see you. Good to be together. Good to come around God's word, isn't it? And so we're going to be looking at this passage in Mark chapter 2 in a moment. There's a story that I want to tell you about of a fitness center. And uh, this fitness center owner was offering $1,000 to anyone who could prove that they were stronger than he was. And here was, here's how it worked. The owner of the fitness center was a real uh, muscular man, and he would take this lemon and he'd squeeze it until all the juice had run into a glass. And then he'd hand the lemon to the challenger. And anyone who could squeeze just one more drop of juice out would win the money. Over time, many people tried. I mean, they were weightlifters and construction workers and even professional wrestlers. But no one could get another drop of juice out of that lemon. One day, a short, skinny guy came in and signed up for the contest. And amid the laughs and snickers of the crowd, the owner grabbed a lemon and squeezed the juice out of it and handed it then to the scrawny-looking man. The man clenched his fist around the lemon and squeezed it, and six more drops of juice fell into the glass. Everybody went silent, and the owner paid out the money and then asked him, how did you do it? I mean, you're obviously, you're not a lumberjack, and you're obviously not a weightlifter. I mean, how did you squeeze more juice out? The man replied, yeah, none of those. I work for the Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you work for the IRS, no offense, all right? Stay with me on this. Most of us, we don't have these warm fuzzies when it comes to the IRS, let's be honest. Snoopy on his doghouse was typing away and he said, Dear IRS, I'm writing to you to cancel my subscription. Well, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. We have our feelings and thoughts around the IRS, don't we? Well, in the days that Jesus walked on the earth, the most de de despised people were the tax collectors. Tax collectors squeezed out as much as they could out of the people. Tax collectors were those people everyone loved to hate. And we're introduced to one of those hated tax collectors today in our true account of Jesus calling to Levi to follow him. And so if you're with, look with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2, or get, go to your phone and find it, but Mark chapter 2, as we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 in a moment. We're continuing in our sermon series for the summer on Follow Me. And we've been looking at the marks of a true disciple of Jesus. And so as we come to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, there are three main characters in this story. There is, of course, Jesus. There is Levi, whom we're told in the other gospel accounts that, of this story. He's also called Matthew. And the third major player in this story are the Pharisees. Now, as Pastor Dan uh, last week urged us to paint ourselves into the painting, as artist Rembrandt often did, we're to put ourselves into the drama of this story. Are you Levi? 
Are you a Pharisee? Are you more like Jesus? Now, for outline purposes, I put it this way, contact, criticism, and comeback. Contact, criticism, and then comeback. So first, let's look at contact of the sick. And in the first service, Brian Mondock read from a translation. I need to find out what translation it was. But instead of sick, it said scum. So contact of the scum, I thought was a little strong. I weakened a little and said contact of the sick. But you'll see where we're going with this. In Mark chapter 2, look with me at verse 13. Verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Now, it's helpful to notice what took place just prior to these verses that we're looking at here. If we had the time, we'd go back to uh, verses 1 through 12 of the same chapter, chapter 2. And there it's the scene of four guys who carry their paralytic friend down the roof of a house to Jesus for healing. That's the kind of friends you want to have. Well, Jesus does heal the man. But what also stands out in that scene uh, is that Jesus pronounces forgiveness. And so the thread that ties that true incident to what we're looking at this morning is this matter of forgiveness. We're immediately confronted with the question, what kind of people can be forgiven? Enter Levi, Matthew. What did he do for a living? Collected taxes. He was a tax collector. And it's safe to say that Levi wasn't ever asked to speak at career days at the local elementary school. Tax collectors were a mafia-like organization. Within the tax system, There were the stated taxes, like the poll tax that everyone from an early age had to pay for just breathing. There was a ground tax, which required one-tenth of all grain and one-fifth of all wine and oil produced. There was also an income tax, which was around 10% of one's own annual income. And the tax collectors would not only collect the required amount of taxes from the people, but they would then overcharge the taxpayers. That's how they became so wealthy. And basically, they would invent taxes on anything and everything. Pedestrian taxes, taxes on the wheels of your cart, the fish you caught, market taxes, crossing a certain bridge, road taxes. It was unlimited in abuses. It's Ronald Reagan who would poke fun of the government. He said, if it moves, tax it. That's basically what was going on here. And so tax collectors were seen as quite corrupt. They took bribes from the rich, and they squeezed everything they could from the poor. And to make matters worse, any Jew who would buy a franchise of taxation within the Roman system and tax his own people is considered to be in the category of unclean beasts. They could not serve as witnesses in any court because they could not be believed. They could not attend the synagogue. They were in a class with, with robbers and murderers. 
One rabbi said about tax collectors, for a tax collector, repentance is well nigh impossible. I mean, you get the picture. Levi was one of these traitors. A sinner who was no better than pigs. This is the guy Jesus chooses for his team. We might say, Jesus doesn't appear to draft wisely. Push fisherman, tax collector. And then Jesus likely is the one who renames Levi Matthew. You know what Matthew's name means? Gift of God. Gift of God? Are you kidding me? He's a tax collector. Absolutely stunning. Equally stunning is Levi's response here. What is Levi's response? Well, look at me at the end of verse 14. Jesus says, follow me. What does Levi do? Follow along at the end of verse 14. Levi says, Jesus, I'll be right there. Just let me grab these bags of money and I'm right behind you. That's not what he does. Levi got up, followed him. No particulars, no negotiations, not much discussion here, really none at all. Jesus said, follow me, and Matthew got up and followed him. And Luke's account of this, he adds, he forsook all. Now, it speaks of Matthew leaving everything to follow Jesus. Listen, he left everything. For fishermen to follow Jesus, that was a big deal. But they could always return to their jobs of fishing if this following Jesus thing didn't work out. For Matthew, there was no turning back. Once he left his post, his job was through. Now, most of us aren't called to give up our jobs, source of income to follow Jesus. But for Matthew, he forsook it all. Now, think about this. For the very first time, and perhaps a very long time, Matthew... As Jesus looked in his eyes, Matthew was treated like a human being and not some piece of dirt. Jesus didn't see a low life deserving condemnation. He saw what he could become. And what's the first, one of the first things Matthew does as a follower of Jesus? Does he attend a, a How to Reach Your Neighbor seminar? <laughs> Does he, does he go through this six-week course on evangelism? Did he call the pastor of the local church and say, can you go visit my friends who need the Lord? No, no, none of that. What does he do? He throws a party. He throws a party. Now, maybe you're uncomfortable calling it a party, but in Luke's account of the story, he calls it a great banquet. I mean, it was quite a spread that people were carrying on. So whatever you call it, it's a room full of irreligious people. What a novel way of doing evangelism, huh? Going to where the unbelievers are. Well, as an enthusiasm, Levi, he wanted all his friends to meet this Jesus. And who would be his friends? What kind of friend does a tax collector have? Well, the only friends he would have would be other despised tax collectors and prostitutes and the scum of the earth, the lowliest of all human beings, the, the sinners. Now, perhaps this morning, if you put yourself into this drama, you can relate to Levi. You can relate to all Levi's friends. You feel like such a sinner. You, you, you feel socially undesirable. You feel like the least likely person to be called by Jesus to follow him. Jesus comes to this tax collector. He comes to all his friends, and he offers them a fresh start 
and life. There was this incident in which a man's name was printed in the obituary column of the newspaper by mistake. He hadn't died. So greatly disturbed, he went to the newspaper office and, and exclaimed, this is horrible. Your error will cause me embarrassment. It could even mean the loss of some business. How could you have done such a thing? Well, the editor expressed regrets, and, but the man remained angry, and he was unreasonable. And finally, the editor said, he goes, cheer up. I'll tell you what. Tomorrow, I'll put your name in the birth column and give you a fresh start. <laughs> okay. Do you need a fresh start? A new lease on life? You know, we have no idea what God can do with that life that looks so messed up right now. Russell Moore, back a few years ago, he said this, the next Billy Graham might be drunk right now, the next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with a Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a, a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be sexually promiscuous cult member right now. Just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. <laughs> I don't know what Jesus wants to make of your life, but I do know this. Jesus came to change lives. His grace provides new beginnings. There's no one so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. That's the scandal of grace. And by scandal, I mean it's scandalous in that it, it, it's unmerited. It's, it's undeserved. Jesus sees in us what no one else can see and turns us into what we were intended to be, the image bearers of his glory. Jesus seeks sinners. So here's Levi having a party at his house. And where was Jesus? He's right there eating with them. And verse 15 tells us this. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, that brings us to the criticism. Criticism of the smug. The Pharisees take issue with Jesus hanging out with sinners. Shocker, right? The Pharisees here were likely, they weren't at the party. They would have nothing to do with going inside this house. They were likely outside looking through the windows or maybe an open door. And, and, but wherever they were where this party was going on, they didn't like what they saw. In their eyes, Jesus was always in the wrong house eating with the wrong people. Verse 16. Follow along. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating and the sinners and the tax, with the sinners and the tax collectors, notice this, they went to Jesus and asked him, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's not what it says. I didn't read that exactly right. On purpose. Do you see what happens here? Being such men of courage as they were. The Pharisees, they don't go to Jesus. They go to Jesus' disciples and ask them, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, what kind of people, what kind of leader do you have that hangs out with those kind of people? Now, this is often is, is the way of self-righteous people. They talk to others about what offends them and not to the person. And everything offends them. It's no fun being around religious snobs. 
I believe it was Mark Twain who said, having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. There's no, it's no fun. Jesus is intentionally having dinner with a bunch of non-religious, talk-of-the-town kind of people, people everyone loved to hate, the sinners. And other places, what did, what did, um, what was, what did some people accuse Jesus of? That he was a friend of sinners. And I wonder, when was the last time I was ever accused of that? How is it that Jesus attracted the notoriously imperfect? Why did the down and out of his day flock to him? Because he got as close to them as you can without compromise and contamination by them. Jesus came right down and got in the room with sinners and ate with them. Sinners felt welcomed by Jesus. 2,000 years later, do they still feel welcomed among his followers? It's a true story of a man who ministered to the downer outer people in the city of Chicago. On one occasion, this man encountered a prostitute who was in wretched straits. I mean, she was homeless. Her health was failing. She was unable to even buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Her eyes filled with tears as she confessed how she even put her own two-year-old daughter at risk as she did whatever she could to support her own drug habits. This man could, could hardly bear hearing the sordid details of her life. He just sat there in silence, not knowing what to say. And at last, finally, he, he asked her if she'd ever thought of going to a local church for help. And a look of astonishment crossed her face, and she replied, Church? Why would I ever go there? They'd just make me feel even worse than I already do. Ouch. Do we have the eyes of a judge? Do I? Are we more comfortable putting labels on people and then ignoring them from then on? Is there a little Pharisee in Pastor Brian? Is there a little Pharisee in you? I mean, do we, do we secretly think that God's fortunate to have us on his team? I don't say it out loud, but God's he's pretty fortunate. He has me. Now, by the way, the Pharisees, they were held in high esteem in that day. They were the pious ones. They, they rigorously followed the law of Moses, the Torah. The problem with the Pharisees was they built this imaginary fence around the law of Moses to guard against any possible violation. The problem that that Jesus had with the Pharisees is that they elevated their traditions to be equal with Scripture. The main issue Jesus calls them out on was their adherence, overbearing focus on the outward requirements, yet ignored the real matters of the heart. You see, to get more religious might be one of the worst things you could ever do. Reminded of uh, C.S. Lewis' book, Screwtape Letters. Likely I've shared this with you before. But it's a conversation in in this book of Screwtape Letters. You need to understand what's going on there. Wormwood is under the training of his uncle, Screwtape. It's a great book. Screwtape is writing to his nephew, Wormwood, about how to carry out the affairs of Satan and confuse Christians and the lost world. 
That's the context of this. And so he's, he's speaking here to his nephew. And he says this, you must arrange to make him, meaning that Christian, you must arrange to make him a devout Methodist or Anglican or Baptist or Presbyterian or what have you. Make him that. He must come to accept the church as a type of religious social club where people congregate, nothing more. He goes on, in a word, wormwood, help him to become more religious, but not more Christian. Church, we are constantly at risk of mistaking religion for Christianity. To become smug. To adopt this ethic of avoidance rather than ethic of involvement. I love what um, C.T. Studd said. He was a, a brilliant young Englishman who gave away a fortune, gave all his money so he could go to the forest, the dark places of Africa. A lot of evil there. At that time when he's writing this. He, he put his philosophy this way. He says, some like to dwell within the sound of church and chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's what Jesus did. And he was criticized for it. And you may be as well. It's been said, if you aren't offending some Pharisee, you're probably not very, being very effective. All right, work that out. Let's look at the comeback of the Savior, comeback of the Savior. And when I think of comebacks, I, I couldn't help myself here, but, but think of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was the master of comebacks. He was known for his wit and bluntness. And on one occasion, this grouchy lady got on one of the smoking seats on an open car in the subway. Next to her was Winston Churchill smoking his cigar. And the lady was all bent out of shape. She fussed, she wriggled, she grew angrier and angrier and looked at Churchill scornfully. And she said to him, sir, if I were your wife, I'd put poison in your coffee. <laughs> Winston Churchill replied, ma'am, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Not gonna lie, I like that. He was indeed just known for great comebacks. When a member of the parliament said to him, Churchill, must you fall asleep while I'm speaking? Churchill replied, no, it's purely voluntary. <laughs> All right, here's a comeback here by Jesus that better than any of those. He was asked why he would attend this party and he gives one of the best comebacks ever. He gives him a common sense statement which no one could argue with. Verse 17. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, the way this verse is put together in the original, it puts the emphasis on need not. Well, people need not a doctor. Sick people do. And then he adds, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And to repentance is what he says in Luke. Those are his final words at this dinner party. What is interesting here is that the Pharisees, they weren't wrong in their diagnosis. Their diagnosis was correct. Jesus was hanging out with sinners and the people in Matthew's house were not well. To their credit, they have that part right. But why then, if that is true, why didn't that grip their hearts? I mean, if these people are the worst of sinners, then where's their compassion for them? Where's their concern? Do they have any answer? I mean, would you continue to go to a doctor who said to you, you know, I have the diagnosis, yep, you're sick, 
I just don't have time to bother with a cure or treatment on your own. No, they made the diagnosis, but they stopped there. Why? Because in their self-righteousness, they were indifferent. They were all about avoidance and rituals, externals, rigmarole. The question on their minds was, how can we keep from getting dirty? On Jesus' mind was, how can I make them clean? The room was full of spiritually sick individuals. Unfortunately, there's a doctor in the house. Now, Jesus noticed in verse 17, he identifies two groups of people. Those who are righteous and those who are sinners. Now, it should cause you a little bit to think there a little bit because in Romans, we're told there's none righteous, none righteous, no, not one. So when Jesus here speaks of righteous, what is he saying? He's saying he means those who are righteous in their own eyes. They're well because, you know, in their opinion, they're following all the list of rules. They're conforming to a system. They're taking care of all the stuff that really matters. The outward appearances and external piety, impressing other people. And this is why Jesus' comeback here is so potent. Jesus didn't come for those who think they're well and are not. He came for the sinners. Not for the smug, not for the self-righteous, and the self-reliant. And so if your self-diagnosis is that you aren't that bad, I mean, you're sincere, you, you try hard, you do your best, then you have no need for the great physician. But if you're here today and you can admit, you know, I'm a sinner against a holy God, then you're ready to receive the cure. I mean, you might be here aware, like Matthew, of, of the ways you've kind of blown it and messed up things in your life and how you've offended a holy God by your sinfulness. And that, well, guess what? That puts you in, in range of the great physician who brings his forgiveness. You might be here today and you know you've tried to find the answer in, in, in some religious system. And you don't just seem to fit anywhere. You feel kind of like you're on the outside looking in when it comes to God. Listen, Jesus comes to you and he says very simply, follow me. Choice is now in your hands. Jesus came to save sinners. If we can admit we are one, there's a doctor in the house, Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, get better first before you come see me. No, he says, come to me while you're sick. See, a doctor who advertised, well, patients only, I don't want to be exposed to anything contagious. They wouldn't have a very large practice. I mean, can you imagine a doctor having as a mission statement, get well and then I'll see you. So you, you call the office, reception, receptionist of the doctor answers and that's why you want to see the doctor and you answer, well, I have this terrible cough and, and I have this high fever and I've had it for several days now. And the receptionist replies, oh, so you're sick? Well, Yes, you answer, that's why I called. Well, I'm sorry you hear the receptionist on the other end say, the doctor only sees healthy people. <laughs> when you get better, I'm sure the doctor would be glad to see you. And you go, that's absurd. Doctors have contact with sick people. The analogy is obvious here. That's why it's such a great comeback. A doctor can be expected to be seen among sick people and go where the sick people are. And a forgiver is expected to be among sinful people and go where that need is recognized. Jesus went to the people who had the deepest need and knew their need. The Pharisees looked around the room and they saw filth. Jesus saw patience. 
What do you see? What do we see? Do we see the behaviors and actions of people we pass by every day, or we may live next door to us and may show up at the company picnic or this family gathering, we just kind of shake our head and disgust at them, yet have no compassion? Does the person who, who blows smoke in your direction from his cigarette or the person who cusses like a sailor or the person who dresses a certain way that just kind of rubs you the wrong way or, or reeks of alcohol or the kind of person commonly despised, our diagnosis might be correct. Sinner. But are we then indifferent toward what they need the most? Do you have the eyes of a judge? Or do we have the eyes of a doctor? Now, imagine with me that you're blind. You're blind. So, let's complete a few basic tasks, like separating medications, using the right buttons on the microwave and the oven, knowing which side of the street to catch the bus. Think of all the questions you might have because you can't see. There's a nonprofit app that's out that allows sighted people to lend their eyes to those with visual impairments through this video chat. It's called the, the Be My Eyes app. It was developed by a, a visually impaired man in Denmark. And it connects blind people to sighted volunteers through video chat. And so the volunteer can answer questions because they can see the blind person's surroundings using their, their phone's camera. So for example... Be My Eyes app user connected with this younger man who wanted to know the expiration date of the milk in his refrigerator. And so the visually impaired man positioned his phone's camera to the top shelf and looking at the image of the milk carton on his phone, the app user said, I, I, I wouldn't drink that if I were you. Listen, Jesus calls us to help the spiritually blind to see. But it means we, might have the, we must have the right eyes ourselves. To not look merely at the outside and judge. Like the old, old Bo Diddley song. You can't judge an apple by looking at a tree. You can't judge honey by looking at the bee. You can't judge a daughter by looking at the mother. You can't judge a book by looking at the cover. Oh, can't you see? Oh, you misjudge me. How many times have I done that? See, a mark of a true disciple is to have the eyes of a doctor, not a judge. The mark, the characteristic of a true disciple of Jesus, they follow Jesus to have the eyes of a doctor, not a judge. You see, with the eyes of a doctor, you can see the hurts that God can heal. You can see the pain behind that person's grumpiness. You can see the fear in that person's eyes of an unknown future. You can see that person's bitterness, his bitterness over failed relationships. You can see her acting out of desperation to being alone in the world. So you can see, not just judge the behavior and make the snap judgment. You see the why behind it. What do you see? Alexander Sheeman late priest, led a reformed uh, movement in Russian orthodoxy. He tells of a time when he was traveling on the subway in Paris, France with his fiancée. 
So these two Russians are in Paris, France, on this subway. And at one stop, this, this old, ugly woman dressed in the uniform of the Salvation Army got on and found a seat nearby. The two lovers whispered to each other in Russian about how repulsive she looked, and they went on and on. A few stops later, the woman stood to exit, and as she passed them, she said in perfect Russian, I wasn't always ugly. <laughs> she heard the whole thing. Shmiman says that woman was an angel of God. He says, she opened my eyes, searing my vision in a way I will never forget. Do I need a little adjustment to my vision? So I don't make these snap judgments. Go, oh, yeah, I got it all figured out. I know who they are. I got it. I might be dead wrong. It doesn't matter even if I'm right. What do you see? What do I see? Eyes of a doctor, not of a judge. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we're thankful you don't just judge us by our appearances, by our behaviors. You know what's going on in our lives. And, you, and it tells us in your word that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You didn't wait for us to get it all figured out and cleaned up because we still haven't got it all figured out. Thank you for the wonderful truth that we're going to touch on right here as we close with a song that you are a friend of sinners. God, I pray that we too can not only appreciate that about you and, 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 and walk in that with joy in our hearts, how that's so true to our lives, but may we also extend that to the people around us so we can truly make a difference in their lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.